Welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media. We provide business professionals with insights and ideas for protecting their people from the vast array of threats facing organizations today. Each week, you'll hear advice and best practices from an experienced safety leader. Here's your host, Peter Steinfeld. Well, hello, listener. I hope you're having a great week. Our guest today is flipping the script on corporate crisis management and resilience. Brendan Monahan is head of U.S. Resilience and Crisis Management for a major global pharmaceutical company, and he's author of Strategic Corporate Crisis Management, Building an Unconquerable Organization. According to Brendan, a traditional approach to crisis management limits an organization's potential to reach true resilience. He says the key to building a culture of readiness is in decentralizing crisis response. Let's listen in. Brendan, you have a really interesting background, and I'm always interested in a good origin story. So how did you get into crisis management and response? <laughs> sure. Thank, thanks, Peter. I guess the, the origin story begins um, as a young graduate student, a very young graduate student living in Belfast, Northern Ireland. I was finishing up my dissertation and had just scored an amazing internship opportunity at the United Nations in New York. So I Moved home to New Jersey. I was working in New York. And in the last weeks of August 2001, I was coming back from a research trip in Sarajevo. I'd been working with the police service and the UN operations over there. And a few weeks after that, we had the 9-11 attacks, of course. So for me at that point in my life, not really knowing exactly what I wanted to do or where I was going from there... The experience of having lived in Belfast after the Good Friday Agreement, having been on the ground and witnessed post-war Sarajevo, and then, of course, living in New Jersey and working in New York City and witnessing the 9-11 attacks really galvanized my, um, my hope, my aspiration to get into public service and get in, in such a way that you know, the things that I had been learning could be of, of use and of value. So fast forward a few years, and I find myself working as an intelligence investigator in counterterrorism for New Jersey State Homeland Security Agency. And I had a few roles there, the last of which placed me in charge of a, a small team of intelligence analysts at something called a fusion center. It was called the Regional Operations Intelligence Center in uh, central New Jersey, down at state police headquarters. And the concept here, Peter, was kind of new at the time. This is 2008, 9, 2010. The concept was to bring all of the agencies, all of the partners and stakeholders that had a role in Homeland Security physically together um, to foster collaboration and to overcome some of those coordination challenges that were obvious after 9-11. So we were part of a, a team that also involved FBI agents and analysts, DEA, ATF, Secret Service, everyone you can imagine, state health agencies, state emergency management agencies. And increasingly, under this roof, we were finding reason to and really good cooperation with private sector enterprises, the owners and operators of the critical infrastructure that mapped to the threats that we were identifying. So we were looking at the intent and capability of bad guys, but finding that the real nexus lay outside of our jurisdiction and protecting the people and the assets that were often most at risk 
light outside of our immediate grasp. So, so we found a real connection with the private sector. And at that time, you saw all these really great collaborations begin with or take hold, I should say, with OSAC and DSAC and InfraGuard and the intelligence analyst roundtables popping up all over all over the world and all over the country. So it was really an exciting time to be involved in that work and having a role in in some of those problems to solve. Yeah, what a fascinating time to come to your own and, and grow up in this industry when so many crazy things were going on. What was it like working with all those different stakeholders, especially since previously there were firewalls between all those agencies and groups? Yeah, I mean, it was it was really an, an amazing experience for for me, being very young in that world and and kind of new to a lot of those issues, and working with some very experienced law enforcement and military and emergency management folks who had seen so many things and then lived through you know what was going on at that time. And yeah, there were a lot of challenges in in establishing such a a broad task force, especially when you talk about bringing in private enterprises and and sort of non-public, non-government stakeholders. So there was it was not without its challenges, but overwhelmingly, I would say it was really an eye-opening exercise in the value of collaboration and the ways in which that collaboration can take shape. That it need not be prescriptive or follow an exact recipe every time. We could get stakeholders together and solve novel problems in ways for which we didn't necessarily have a plan. And I found that to be very interesting as I, as I reflected back on it later in my career. What was it that encouraged them to overcome the mistrust or perhaps hesitance to share information pre 9-11? Was it just that event that was just so huge that caused them to say, we just have to change how we do things? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there were all sorts of investigations and all sorts of lessons learned activities and, and structured reviews of, of what took place and what some of the failings were that drove structurally and institutionally some of the changes. The formalization of the ICS structure and the sort of establishment of that as the gold standard for coordinating emergency management, overcoming some of the interoperability challenges, all of that was being defined as sort of a policy level. And on the on the ground, working day to day with these folks, what I experienced were very personal commitments to doing better, doing more, doing right. Everyone was really taken by the mission that they had and had a very personal stake in it. We lived in New Jersey. We worked in New Jersey. We lived and worked in New York City. So it was kind of personal for a lot of people. And, and for me as well, growing up in Rutherford, you know, I could see what was going on from my home at that time. So it was all of those things. You know, it was a really unique time to be involved in that, that work. And how does what you experienced at that time compare to a more, let's say, traditional approach to crisis management? So you know, when I think about crisis management today, I, I think there's you know, a lot that we've gained from all of those experiences and, and all of the experiences from the years before. And there's a lot of really good structured approaches to emergency response, incident response, and the broad category of crisis management itself. I think increasingly with the types of threats that are facing complex enterprises in particular, large global companies, large national companies here in the U.S. or elsewhere, the degree of complexity, the frequency of incidents occurring, and the severity with which they can have consequence for the survivability of some of these organizations means that we may need a different approach. Or maybe some of the approaches that we've used in the past need to be modified substantially. And I think 
we can achieve that in a way that's sort of straightforward, at least begins in a simple and straightforward manner. Would you say historically people take more of a siloed approach and they just ignore outside resources and other things that could help them instead of taking a partnership approach? I think, I think sometimes that happens, right? I think there can be a tendency for that, a natural human tendency. When things are going wrong and something is happening that no one has ever experienced before, whatever the crisis may be, I think there's a natural tendency to gather up resources and control and sort of husband them closely to oneself or one's organization while recognizing that that may not be the right thing to do. We've gotten really good at responding to certain types of things over and over. You know, in the U.S., we see all these natural disasters that are multi-billion dollar events. And our responses to those have become, I think, very good, unfortunately, because we've had so much practice. Similar with some of the more common security situations we experience, active shooter events and things involving large public gatherings. All right, so we've, we've established really good processes and playbooks for those types of things. And I think that's good. And that need not change. But perhaps when we encounter novel challenges like coronavirus, which is a good example, that could have been potentially catastrophic for an organization that had never experienced anything like that before, a more open-minded, maybe a more agile approach to the crisis response can result in a better outcome. At least that's what I believe. And it seems like there's a lot of unknowns. Like you said, you haven't planned for it. It's completely novel. So what are the questions that you have to ask when something like that pops up? So when I think about ICS, or I think about a traditional approach to emergency management, or even to crisis management, there's lots of different models you can take into account. But really, the truth is that whatever the crisis is, whatever the situation is, it's going to follow something like a storyline. When you think back on whatever occurred, you're going to tell the story. There was a beginning, something happened, this is what we did about it, and, and this was the outcome of what we learned. So. If you think about a crisis that's unfolding before you in that way, there's always going to be a beginning, a middle, and an end, which follows a pattern of escalation, right? You're going to need more and different types of resources and the ability to manage them as an incident expands over space and time. That's always going to be the case, whether it's big or small. Those things will always be true. So maybe the way to think about it is start by asking who's in charge? What needs to be done and who's doing what? Whatever the situation is, I found that practice to be good at taking a timeout when an escalating situation is taking place. If I can't ask and answer those three questions, then the situation is escalating out of our control. If we don't have the ability to define the leadership and the decision maker and define a simple set of initial actions or objectives and assign them to somebody, we're not going to get anything else done. And the event is going to continue to get away from the organization. But having done that, those three things answered, asked and answered those three questions, I think you begin to take significant hold over what's going on. And from there, you begin to plot the, the course more accurately, right? You begin to take control of the story that's going on around you. So how do you define the crisis management team then going forward? It seems like as new information becomes available, you consistently ask those three questions each and every day or each and every hour as new information comes in and the team could expand and contract depending on how those get answered. Is that right? I think so. You know, and, and this is where a flexible approach really matters. It's going to depend on 
the organization where you work. Crisis management professionals have to think about their team as taking the shape of its container. What matters to your organization or your enterprise should be reflected in the team that's responding to your incidents. And it it doesn't have to be the same team every time, but more than likely, there'll be a core group of a few stakeholders, not individuals, but positions that, that will be needed on every response. You know, for example, you're going to need some kind of a coordination expert who shepherds the process at your company, crisis management person, right? You're going to probably need someone from legal, maybe someone from human resources, someone from communications, and then you're going to need the relevant operations experts. So it can be good to have, instead of a strict plan, a playbook, which contains a roster of positions that you can go and find in short order. The real challenge then isn't making sure you're following a plan or grabbing the right ICS form, it's establishing the team and beginning the discussion. So I think of it this way, right? The strategy is the team and the plan is the conversation. And if you practice that mindset, then what you get are a set of objectives in answer to those questions and a set of decision makers, stakeholders that you can direct in response to whatever's happening. It could be an earthquake, it could be a storm, something you've seen before, or it could be something completely new. Yeah, I think that's a great way to position it. It's put the team in place that has the experience and the understanding of the general issues and knows how to react based on what's thrown at them. Don't try to force them to follow a specific path because you don't know what that path is. Rely on expertise to react in the moment. Exactly. And think of it as telling a story, right? And we are somewhere within the story. We're somewhere past the beginning or towards the middle or the end. But think of it in, in those terms, too. Well, in your experience, what are some tactical ways that an organization can better recover from a crisis? Or perhaps said differently, what are resilient companies doing right today? So I think one of, a, a couple of things come to mind. You know, first is thinking of ourselves in, in crisis management teams as having a first response by role rather than being kind of first responders. So establishing that team, and it may not always be possible, but in a lot of cases, it may be to chart out the first one or two moves for each role that would be true in almost any response, right? You're going to activate the team and assemble somehow and identify objectives. It could be that simple, but to establish some set of first responses, you you may always need some particular set of data in your company, right? So have that data ready. Don't need to ask for it while the team is assembling. Come come prepared for it. So I, I think that's one. The other is to think about loosening control, right? And in blue sky days, working with your senior stakeholders to say, hey, listen, can we build into our crisis management policy, if we have one, <laughs> hopefully you do, build in, um, some devolved responsibility to that team, right? That team can take a few of those initial actions independent of any kind of central command so that you know we can get in front of whatever's occurring and then de-escalate. You know, more often than not, the, the team may gather and prepare and find that the incident is uh, not as bad as it was feared. I think it's true in most cases, and the research seems to bear this out, that the companies that detect and identify potential issues or emergencies or crises quickly will always respond better. Once the incident gets away from you, it's very difficult to catch up. 
And that's where, that's the difference between the winners and the, and the losers in many of these instances, I think. So it's, yeah. the, it's the willingness to acknowledge that something is going wrong, as hard as that may be, especially in, a, in an enterprise setting where it might be operational or reputational in nature, sometimes hard to admit that. Right? So you have to sort of figure out a way of acknowledging that as, a, as an organization and giving some freedom to the team to begin working so that the company is poised for its own good. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because it's human nature, even at the personal level. When you're driving your car and you start hearing your brakes squeak, the natural reaction is just say, ah, it's going to go away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it doesn't. It just gets worse and the problem gets worse. And, you know, suddenly you've got a huge repair that was way more expensive than it otherwise would have been. Absolutely. It's a great analogy. You know, and it's true. It is human nature. It's not, it's not a knock on any one practitioner or organization. And it's something that we'll always find. But I think it's something we can overcome if we if we bake those concepts into our planning in the right way. It's about planning for what's what you're going to confront and what matters most. And you're always going to confront that human nature element. Right? So that's something that you can account for on a blue sky day. Having a, a prescriptive plan for exactly what everyone's going to do in a XYZ scenario, this may not be as good a use of time. So what are some other things that you see crisis management teams struggling with? One of the things I, I hear a lot and I talk a lot about is how we measure ourselves, right? How we measure our success. This is a, a, a constant discussion among my colleagues. And um, there's a tension, right, between how do you prove your effectiveness when things don't happen or when things didn't go wrong because of what you did or what you had in place? You've done a good job of resilience. And as a result, you haven't had to respond to something. That's a good thing, right? But it's difficult to measure. In our world, there's often a tendency for auditors or control monitoring activities to help us measure our maturity and measure our effectiveness. And those activities, those measurement activities require data points like anything else. But what are the right data points? Is it the number of plans? Is it the number of exercises? Is it the number of activations or real-world responses? Or how many AARs you've done? I'm not sure. It's very comfortable to set those criteria. You know, We have to have X number of plans and complete them and test them on sort of an annual basis. And don't get me wrong. I, I fully understand that we have a duty and an obligation to plan well to complete planning processes it's expected of us and it is our responsibility to ourselves to our our regulators our customers our patients whatever the case may be the people that depend on us depend on us to do planning right but we need to acknowledge that planning alone is not equivalent to readiness and you know we're often challenged by the people that measure and grade our work to prove that somehow. And and that's that's tough. They want to see results in terms of those activities. And and sometimes it's difficult to to display that in the right way. So I think having an, an open dialogue with the folks that are measuring your program or evaluating your system and letting them know that you fully acknowledge the importance of planning and planning activities and having all of these things in place, but that you also want to invest time and energy into doing it in a way that's meaningful to the overall outcome. So what kind of guidance would you give to a crisis manager or safety leader who's listening today that wants to reimagine their approach to achieving resiliency? I would start with making your plan built around those three questions. Whatever's happening, we're going to ask and answer these three things first. Who's in charge? What needs to be done? Who's doing what? 
from there, we're going to build something like a clean container, right? It's just a template. Your ICS 201 form, even, right? If you're into that, it's going to help you sort of fill in some of the common questions, put some names, put some accountability in place. But it's a it could be a blank page, right? But you will document. You commit to documenting what you're doing, right? And then from there, I think it's defining the strategy as the team and the plan as the discussion, right? So capturing actions, assigning accountability, and driving kind of a sense-making pro- process through the team that's actually responding. And it shouldn't be a cast of thousands, right? It should be the people that are decision makers who recognize that their collective goal is to do good decision making, to recommend good decisions to the owners or the operators or the uh, the board, whoever it is that's ultimately going to make the call for the organization. I love that idea of, of thinking about it in terms of how do we always ensure we're making the best decisions possible? Kind of come to it with that lens. Right. And I think, you know, the way you can build that into a, a playbook of sorts, you know, is to identify those first responses by role. Be very deliberate about how you're going to activate and how you're going to escalate. Right. And then exercise it. Get that team together a couple of times a year on a non-emergency basis and just let them sort of walk through the paces. It doesn't have to be a heavy lift. It could be done in an hour or less, but get everyone kind of comfortable with what the expectations are, right? And that they are not expected to save the world alone, that this is going to be a collaboration and we are going to provide the basis for good decisions to the organization and that that business or organization is going to do what they can with it. Can you share an impactful story of your corporate crisis management strategy in action? I think there's a lot of great examples of how some of this thinking played out in the COVID response at, at all sorts of companies. You know, that was that was so overwhelmingly impactful to everyone on the planet, right? There was really no one that wasn't personally impacted by that in some way. And it blew so many plans right out of the water that we had to start from a blank page in, in a lot of areas. And the the challenge that many of us experienced with that COVID response too was there seemed to be a fog at times, right? It was hard to know exactly what the rules of the road were or what the guidelines should be. And, and they changed as, as the pandemic went on, right? What we needed to do and what the right thing to do differed from, from one week to the next very often. So I, I think, you know, that forced certain level of agility and willingness to change on a lot of us and, and helped open people's eyes. One of the best examples of what I'm trying to describe is actually a case that involved the Anchorage airport in 2018. So in November of 2018, there was a massive earthquake in Anchorage, Alaska, like a 7.1, followed by a second earthquake, almost as big. The earthquake itself was was pretty bad. It damaged a lot of infrastructure, wasn't massive loss of life. But the Anchorage airport, which is, by the way, one of the busiest for freight aircraft, as well as for for passenger aircraft from across the Pacific, had this incredible experience, which you can hear the live radio transmissions from pilots and the air traffic control tower on YouTube. It's, It's a really interesting listen. Always impressive how calm people in that industry are when things are going so badly sideways. But as as this earthquake hits Anchorage, from the air traffic control tower, you hear the air traffic controllers telling a plane on final descent to go around because for all they know, that landing strip, that 
runway has buckled, right? Mm. So there is a line of aircraft waiting to land with really nowhere else to go. The air traffic controllers in the tower are having their equipment fall down. The ceiling is coming down on them. They have to evacuate the tower. They're affecting their own evacuation while maintaining communication with aircraft in flight and on final approach to the airport. They had had this happen before, Peter. An earthquake struck Anchorage Airport 30 years or so before and actually uh, demolished the tower. The air traffic control tower fell. It, it killed one of the air traffic controllers. It was a terrible, mm. terrible situation. So here they are again in a much taller tower um, having been rebuilt. They're evacuating. They're following their plan, which defines that they should go to a secondary building to run their air traffic control operations. They get there and that building is not available. It has been damaged. So what do they do? Right? Their plan has been destroyed. Right? Their plan is up in smoke. The air traffic controller who was in charge basically followed this model, right? Who's in charge, what needs to be done, and who's doing what, right? I'm the supervisor. We need to make sure we communicate with these aircraft, we get them safely on the ground, and we communicate with the other stakeholders in the airport. So what do they do? They grabbed their radios, some binoculars, and they hopped in the back of a pickup truck and drove to the runway. And from there, they were able to get all the planes that were in the queue safely on the ground, communicate with other stakeholders in the airport. There was a medevac helicopter that needed to leave to, to rescue someone. They achieved all of this completely on the fly, right? By being sort of willing to follow a couple of simple steps. They established those objectives, right? We're, we're going to do these couple of things to the exclusion of everything else, right? If there's someone knocking on the door who isn't part of this response, they're, they're going to have to wait, right? They established those priorities and, and the outcome was very good. And if you talk to those guys, they, they will say, you know, it's sort of second nature to us. It, it came it came from all the practice that they do in that business, right? They they spend a lot of energy in planning and preparation, but the plan itself had gone up in smoke. They were able to somehow adapt to those circumstances. I love the idea of being able to somehow map that to crisis teams on an enterprise level. That agility, that willingness to respond to events, but in a structured way. That's a fantastic story and an excellent proof point that this is not just theory, but can actually work well in reality. And it goes to prove the point that planning in and of itself is not the end goal. It's just a way to get the muscle memory down so you don't freeze like a deer in the headlights when the actual disaster hits. Absolutely. Well, outside your day-to-day -day role, what other projects do you have in your hands right now? Well, I'm involved in the ASIS International Crisis Management and Business Continuity Committee. So I've been been part of that group for a number of years now. I was the chair of the council and the vice chair for a while. That keeps me pretty busy. It's a great group of practitioners from all kinds of industries all around the world, as well as government that come together and talk about a lot of these very same issues we're describing. So that's really an exciting place to be. I'm also involved with the um, International Crisis Management Conference, so I'm, I'm looking forward to presenting there in, in June. And I just had my first book come out a couple months ago. So that was that was a big project, and uh, it's been exciting to sort of let that go out in the world. Yeah, that's fantastic. Congratulations on that. Thanks. Well, I know you've been doing this for a long time, so what continues to inspire and motivate you in your role today? Well, uh, Peter, I mean, it's it goes back to those early days, right? When I was 21 and I just gotten back from Belfast and was experiencing all of the, the change that was going on in the world. I like the fact that this work gives us the ability to witness 
some of these history-making events in a very unique way. And to have a role in helping people and helping businesses help the people that depend on them. Right, that is very meaningful to me in a very real way. And I'm grateful that you know, I've had the opportunity to work for some excellent organizations to to do that kind of stuff. You know, the, the other thing too, it's just, you know, that I just find exciting, Peter, is that you never really know when the phone rings what what kind of interesting problem is going to come your way. I until I get tired of that, I'm gonna keep showing up every day. So that's that's part of the excitement for me too. It's like Mission Impossible. You suddenly get a, a record that's gonna self-destruct telling <laughs> you what your next <laughs> mission's gonna be. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, as we wrap things up here, what trends do you see impacting business resilience and crisis management in uh, 2023 this year and then beyond? Look, uh, there's there's no question that we're going to face a lot of challenges in the coming years. There are obvious economic headwinds around the world. There'll be a lot of geopolitical challenges and conflicts that impact supply chains and, and operations and people's very lives day to day, in addition to all of the things that we experienced already without any of that stuff being added, the storms, the, the security incidents, all of that stuff is going to continue to happen. And in this kind of world of exogenous influences, like the economic conditions and the geopolitical threats, we're going to be asked to do more with less. And then I try to see the opportunity in that, Peter, right? So where, where we're being asked to do more with less, then we have to do better and we have to think differently. And maybe there's some truth in here that can help us in getting ourselves and our organizations better positioned to serve the people that depend on them in these conditions. And it seems like the size of the population on the planet in this just-in-time inventory business model we put together make us maybe more powerful and wealthier overall, but also extremely susceptible to any kind of disaster that could present itself. Absolutely. I mean, we're we're so balanced on a knife edge with our infrastructure and our supply chains that, you know, we can become very sensitive to those types of shocks. So, you know, we have to meet in the middle with what our expectations of living in that world should be and what level of readiness we should have in the face of that truth and, and how do we reach it? Well, Brendan, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really learned a lot. I love the simplicity yet powerfulness of your approach. And I'm going to memorize those questions. Who's in charge? What needs to be done? And who's doing what? So incredibly powerful. Thanks, Peter. It was really great talking with you. This has uh, been terrific. So how can we stay in touch with you and uh, where can we find your book? Sure. So the book is called Strategic Corporate Crisis Management, Building an Unconquerable Organization. Uh, you can find it on Amazon and you can reach me on LinkedIn. I have a website called unconquerablebook.com and I'm on Twitter at Strat Crisis Management, Strat Crisis MGT, as well as Instagram at unconquerablebook. Perfect. Well, thanks, Brendan. And thank you all for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. Please subscribe and follow the show if you haven't already. And don't forget to rate and review the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, the industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution. 
To learn more about how to protect your people and business during critical events, visit alertmedia.com. Until next time.